as we get started, I want to remind you, we've been in this series that I called Ignite. And the whole idea of the Ignite series is to help us get an awareness of what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean when the fire of God comes to bear in our lives? What does it mean to be the group of people who have the Spirit of God present within us? What does that fire look like, and what do we look like as a church family that does that? That's the story we've been on for the past couple of weeks, and we started the series to try to do something different. We were all meeting in one worship gathering. We canceled the two worship gatherings. We were just meeting in one, and we brought all the chairs back into the room. We were focusing on this togetherness thing, and then... We all got locked into our homes and other things. And so uh, things got really different really fast for us all. But it doesn't change the question. What does it mean to be the church? In fact, that question becomes more important now than ever. Because what it means to be the church can't possibly be all about just showing up at a Sunday morning gathering. If that were the case, our church just died. But I don't believe that's the case. Our situation is that we want to be people who live the life of Christ, who are followers of Jesus Christ in community with others, whether we get to be face-to-face with them or not. Missionaries have had to do this for centuries. Now it's our opportunity to learn as well. What does it mean to be the church? Well, one of the things that's true is that the Spirit is still with us even when we're apart. In fact, even more than that, we need the Spirit more than normal when we're apart. We have to be in connection with God. And so if you haven't been spending some good time this last week in prayer and in reading your Bible and in having conversations with people that are uplifting and and, um, building you up in your soul, then I encourage you to do that. Take advantage of this opportunity. But what we're going to do today is we're going to look at two characters in the book of Acts who really had to live out the fire of God in their lives. They really had to work on it. It wasn't easy for them. It was tough. And so we're going to look at two characters, one guy named Stephen and one guy named Philip. Now, Stephen, we already saw last week. We saw his name show up in the list of seven deacons that were appointed to help in the distribution of food. We also saw Philip's name in that same list. They were the, some of the top names in that list. So we know that Philip and Stephen were both Greek Jews. Their names were Greek names, and so they were both Jews who were coming from sort of the the Greek perspective, the Greek world. But they really knew the Old Testament also. They really knew what Jesus was all about. And so even though they were Greek, they were definitely in. And when we come to the story, we find that Philip and Stephen, these guys who weren't part of the original 12, had an amazing thing happen in each one of their lives. And for each one of them, the Holy Spirit led them differently But there was one similar strand that was true for both of them. It's worth our time spending some time with it. So let's look at Acts chapter 6. We're going to pick it up with the story of Stephen in verse 8. It says this, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the Sanhedrin, excuse me, members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Now, this is, first of all, Stephen, he's a a man of God, he's a man who is doing miracles, he's a man who's doing wonders, and yet there are these people, these these opposition group, the, the organization of the freedmen, it says, 
who are against him. Something that you're going to see in the next couple of verses is that Stephen is called in to them. And they begin to ask him some very interesting questions. And he gives them some pretty impressive answers. We don't get the list of the specific questions they ask, but we definitely get a description of his answer. And when we begin to look at his answer, you might see Stephen and you're like, hey, listen, I can't be like that. I'm not as eloquent as that guy. I don't have that kind of knowledge that that guy has. Well, I want to remind you of something that Jesus said. In Jesus' own words, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus says this. He says, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but it is the Holy Spirit. That's a fascinating line where Jesus says, if someone ever challenges you, If someone ever says, hey, prove your stuff to me. If someone ever says, hey, listen, tell me what it is that you believe. You don't have to feel intimidated. You don't have to feel worried. Because even if you're put on trial for your belief, Jesus says, say what comes to you. Because it's the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can trust that if you're a follower of Jesus, you can trust that when the moment comes, when the opportunity comes, For you to speak a word to let someone else know what you believe, trust the words that are given to you. Trust what God gives to you. Okay, so here's Stephen. Let's go back to the story. Back in the story, we pick it up again in verse 12. It says, well, I'll read it from verse 11. It says, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So here's their fear. You've got to pay attention to this. This is what they're really afraid of. They're afraid that Stephen is proclaiming two things. Stephen is talking about how Jesus said the temple is going to go away and how Jesus said the customs of Moses are going to die out. So here's Jesus, and Stephen is just repeating the things that Jesus has said. And the Sanhedrin, they don't like it. So they bring in quote-unquote false witnesses, but what they're bringing in is exactly what Jesus said. Jesus did say the temple wasn't going to last. Jesus did say that the laws of Moses weren't going to continue in the same way they had continued before. And so what's fascinating to me is that their false witnesses are speaking the absolute truth. The only thing that makes them false is their intent. Now, I know you've encountered this before. You've encountered people who said the truth in some sort of, you know, aggressive way or negative way that kind of damaged you or hurt you or something. But uh, Stephen doesn't get all uptight about that. In fact, what he does next is he is about to tell them exactly the things he's been accused of. He is about to speak to them Jesus' words. Not in exactly Jesus' words, but how Stephen has understood Jesus' words. And this is amazing. I love this. I love this. But before we, get to G- before we get to Stephen's sermon, take a look at this one verse, verse 15. 
It says, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, when you look at a person, and they're getting ready to speak, they're getting ready to give you a sermon, and their face begins to glow like the face of an angel, you should pay attention. If we had paid attention ourselves, we would have had Chuck bring up the lights on my face right now at this point in time where it would glow super bright. No, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that because I am not an angel, nor do I have the Holy Spirit in the same way that Stephen did at this moment. I believe the Holy Spirit is working in me. I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now at this moment. But what he did with Stephen was a little bit more than I've ever experienced. Because they're looking at Stephen and now his face is glowing. And I just got to tell you one more time. If you see someone whose face is glowing, you pay attention to them. Why would that be important for people who are Jews? Well, it just so happens that when Moses brought the Ten Commandments down from the mountain, his face was glowing because he had been in the presence of God. And anyone who had been paying attention to their Old Testament, for them it was just called the Scriptures, anyone who'd been paying attention to it would have remembered that Moses, when he brought the Word of God, his face was glowing. That's the first hint that these people should have paid attention. Luke, the guy who writes it down, he wasn't a Jew. I don't even know if he knew that was the thing. He's just telling us what happened. But Let's take a look at Stephen's sermon. Now, I'm not going to read you all of Stephen's sermon because I have my own sermon here. And so I'm not going to read you all of his sermon, but I'm going to give you his bullet points. And the first thing you need to know is that as he goes through his sermon in chapter 7, Stephen gives a lot of details. He gives a lot of very Jewish, very specific details. And if you know your Old Testament, these will all be familiar to you. He's just going to tell the story of the Old Testament, highlighting a few specific things. But what's important is he needs to give all these details because it's the details that say, I'm a Jew and I know my history. Remember, Stephen is a Greek Jew. And so these people might consider Stephen sort of a lower quality Jew. And so he has to declare his authority by making sure they know he knows what their scriptures say. And so he's giving all these details to say, yes, I'm a real Jew, and I really know my history. And then the jab is, do you know your history? So he begins to talk. And we're just going to walk through a few of the specific passages that he mentions. So take a look with me first at verses 2 through 3. Stephen says, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Now, one of the reasons that's important for the Jewish people is that they believe that they were living in the promised land, that they were living in the land chosen by God for them. And God had told Moses, and he had told Abraham, and he told all these other people that I'm going to give you this promised land. And they believed it. And so they viewed that land as their prized possession. And the fact that the Romans were there bothered them to no end. That land was their land. But what Stephen does is really interesting. He says, remember, God met Abraham in a distant land. Our story starts, he says, in a distant land. Now, this would have just flown right past them. They all knew this story. 
But if you continue to pay attention, what Stephen does just systematically is he undercuts three of the most foundational doctrines that those people held at the time. Foundational doctrine number one, God works here in this land. This is his special land. Foundational idea number two, God gave us his law, and his law is the absolute number one most important thing in the world. And number three, the temple is the symbol that God is with us and with no one else. This land, this law, and this temple. They were all uptight about that. And what Stephen does is systematically destroy their ideas. Let's keep going. I want to show you the next section here. It's going to be in verses 9 through 10. He says, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, and now he's not talking about Abraham, he's talking about Isaac and then Jacob and then Jacob's sons. Jacob had 12 sons, one of them was Joseph. You might know this story, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, he gets sold into slavery. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. You need to know that none of these guys who are priests, none of them are descendants of Joseph. Because in order to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Levi. And in order to be another Jew of any other stripe, you had to be a descendant of one of the tribes. And Joseph didn't have a tribe named after him. And so that means what Stephen is doing here is he's saying, listen, all of your fathers betrayed the one that God loved. All of your fathers betrayed Joseph, but God blessed him. Now, that's not going to be too obvious to them, but it's still just a little jab in their sides. Let me show you what comes up next. In verses 25, and then we're going to skip and look at 37 through 39. In 25, it says this. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Such an amazing line. Moses thought everybody would see him as the Savior. But they didn't. And this is him reminding the people that before Moses became the official savior, he killed an Egyptian. And then the next day he came back and he thought the Hebrews would say, hey, it's time for us to revolt. And instead they said, who are you? We don't want to follow you. Get out of here. And so Moses had to run away. Skip ahead to verse 37 and we see this. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. (laughs) Stephen is just like, oh my goodness. Stephen is saying, you guys... You guys rejected Moses. You rejected Moses for crying out loud. They think he's rejecting Moses. And he's saying, you rejected Moses. Over and over and over again. Let's go on to the next one. Verse 44 says this, Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. 
It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Listen, you got to know this. This is amazing. The ancestors, the people in numbers who were literally following Moses, they had a tabernacle. And guess what? That tabernacle was later replaced. Stephen is saying, okay, you've had a tabernacle before, but later on Solomon showed up and he built a temple. Let's just remind ourselves of something. The one that God told Moses to build was a tent. And that thing is gone. This thing that's standing here, he's not saying it word for word, but he's reminding them of this. This thing that's standing here in Jerusalem is a temple, not the one that Moses built. Oh, and by the way, it's not even the one Solomon built because the one that Solomon built was destroyed 400 years before Jesus. The one that Solomon built was destroyed. And then later on, a guy named Herod, the king who wasn't even a real king, he's the one who built the temple that was there in Jerusalem then. And so Stephen's like, wait a minute, don't you remember? We had something from God once, and then it got destroyed. We don't know where it is. And then it got rebuilt, and then it got destroyed, and then it got rebuilt. This whole temple thing, I think you're misreading what God is all about with regard to the temple. Look at verse 51. He then says this, you, oh, one more. I got to show you this other one. This is amazing. In verse 48, it says, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? He says, oh, and by the way, let's just remember this. Our God doesn't even live in a temple. Our God doesn't live in something that humans build. So by this point in time, Stephen's made them really mad. There's only one thing he hasn't addressed. He's talked a little bit about the law in the fact that people have been rejecting Moses for a long time. He talked a little bit about the temple and a little bit about the land. But there's one other thing he hasn't mentioned yet, and it's the track record of the Israelite people with regard to God's chosen spokespersons, his prophets. Look what shows up next, verse 51. You stiff-necked people which, by the way, is the word Moses used to refer to the people in the wilderness. He called them stiff-necked. Oh, and by the way, it's the word God used to refer to the people in the wilderness around Mount Sinai. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Oh, that's a terrible thing to say to a Jewish man. You're still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. Here it is. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. The last thing Stephen says in his sermon is you all resisted the Holy Spirit. You have always resisted the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point in time, I could stop. I've got a little bit longer to go, don't worry. But at this point in time, I could stop because this is a sermon that could preach. 
Just the phrase. Read that one verse. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a sermon that could preach really well. The problem is that phrase all by itself doesn't give us enough. It doesn't give us enough because I know a lot of you. I've spoken to a lot of you, and a lot of Christians that I know, a lot of people in this church are very worried about this very idea, about resisting the Holy Spirit. They're like, listen, I want to be a person who's following God's will. I want to be a person who's following God's word. I want to be a person who's hearing the Holy Spirit in my life and who's living that way. All the Christians that I know, most of the Christians I know are like that. Their biggest fear is that they will miss out on the Holy Spirit's leading in their lives. Their biggest fear is not that they would um, be following the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would lead them wrong. Their biggest fear is that they would miss the Holy Spirit or they would accidentally resist the Holy Spirit. Most Christians I know, that's their biggest fear. I'm going to come back to that in just a little bit. The question of how do you know that you're following the Holy Spirit? How can you really know that you're following the Holy Spirit? But right now, I want to talk about something that's my biggest fear with regard to the Christians I know. And it's that people would not be afraid that they are resisting the Holy Spirit. See, I think it's a good thing when you're worried that you might be resisting the Holy Spirit because then that puts you back in the place of asking, Holy Spirit, are you leading me? The dangerous place to be is when you say, oh no, I know which direction to go. I am 100% confident which direction the Holy Spirit wants me to go and that's the direction I'm gonna go and no one can tell me otherwise. Those are the dangerous people. Those are the people who freak me out. Those are the people who scare me. The people who say, I am 100% convinced that I'm right. I don't like those people, largely because every time I look in the mirror, I have to shave that person's face or comb that person's hair or do something, and that person bothers me. I'm too often like that. When I was younger in high school, I remember there was a song, Phil Collins. Some of you I know don't even know the name Phil Collins, but he's a singer who could play the drums at the same time. A, a really awesome, amazing talent. And anyway, so in the late 80s, early 90s, he did this song to poke fun at the televangelists of his day. And the song was, Jesus, he knows me, and he knows I'm right. I've been talking to Jesus all my life. And I just love the lyrics of that song because they call me out. How many times do I think I'm the one who's right? Let me just tell you, you don't have to be afraid that the Holy Spirit is going to lead you wrong. I want you to be open to his leading in your life. I want you to be concerned about his leading in your life. But I definitely want you to be afraid of the idea that says, I know all the answers. And do you know why I want you to be afraid of that idea? Because in this story, Stephen got his wisdom from the Holy Spirit and was speaking the words the Holy Spirit was giving to him at the time. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and the other people in this story are paying attention to the truth they've already been convinced they already know. Look at what shows up in verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. That means they're like grinding their teeth and they're like, ah, doing that kind of thing just to symbolize that they, they hate this guy. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Some, sometimes people see 
they know the story and they know that Stephen ends up dead at the end of the story and they think that Stephen looks up to heaven and he sees heaven open. He sees this vision of heaven as he's being stoned, but no, that doesn't happen. He sees this vision of heaven as he is telling the truth. And here's the thing. All of the people, all of these false people who are attacking Stephen are looking at Stephen. And what is Stephen looking at? He's looking up. And he sees Jesus. These people are offended at this man. And Stephen says, I'm in love with that man. It's a totally different kind of situation. But look at verse 57. At this, they covered their ears. And yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. Like little children. La, 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 la. Like little children who don't want to hear the other person talk anymore. They just decide, I'm done. I'm not listening to this anymore. I'm just going to cover my ears. I'm just going to yell and I'm going to rush at him. And I have to tell you something. This is one of the most important lessons you'll ever learn in life. When God doesn't make sense, you've got to stop interrupting him. When God doesn't make sense, you have to stop interrupting him. Sometimes the best thing you can do is shut your mouth and sit and listen because when God doesn't make sense, it's because you need to understand something new. We've talked about that before. It's one of my soapbox issues. And it's one of my soapbox issues because I desperately don't want to be one of these people. Because look what they do next, verse 58. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. I want to tell you why you need to stop interrupting God when he doesn't make sense. It's because you might miss your next opportunity. When God doesn't make sense, you need to stop interrupting him because it's your next opportunity. Stephen had a very interesting opportunity at this moment. He had the opportunity to be the first Grecian Jew to testify about Jesus. He had the opportunity to be the first non number 12 apostle to teach publicly about Jesus. He had the opportunity to face down the religious leaders of the day and teach about Jesus. And he had the sad but glorious opportunity of being the first Christian martyr to demonstrate to the world that this Jesus is the one who's conquered sin and death. And when we put our faith in him, we put our faith in something that goes beyond death. But there's another opportunity here. Did you see it? There was a man in the crowd named Saul. If you know your New Testament, you know that this Saul later becomes who we call the Apostle Paul. He later becomes the most influential missionary for the name of Jesus that's ever been. He writes over half of the New Testament by himself. He's the person who shapes Christianity more than anyone else other than Jesus. And Stephen had the opportunity to be the first person to preach a message to that man. But Saul had the opportunity to respond. 
Luckily, God didn't give up on Saul. God gave Saul another chance, as we could see if we keep reading in the book of Acts. But this was his first shot. This was his first opportunity. And I got to tell you, when God doesn't make sense, whether it's because of the circumstances in your life, whether it's because of this coronavirus thing, whether it's because of something going on in our church or your family or your workplace, when God doesn't make sense, stop interrupting him because it's your next opportunity. It's your next opportunity. Now, I spent most of my time on this Stephen section because I think Stephen's section sets up what we need to get out of the next section. But we're going to read quickly through the Philip story. Philip, again, he was one of those deacons. Flip with me to chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 4. It says this, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. That means Philip is the first person to leave Jerusalem and talk about Jesus. Not just that, he speaks to Samaritans. So he's a Jewish person who's speaking to Samaritans. That's crossing a cultural barrier. That's something that Jesus had predicted would happen, and Philip is the first person to do it. He proclaims the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. That's an amazing opportunity. Samaria was an opportunity that no one had taken before. And Philip claims that first opportunity. And why does he claim it? Because a persecution broke out. Verse 4, those who had been scattered... Because of the persecution that started with Stephen, all of these people were scattered. And Philip says, okay, I've been scattered. Is this a damage to the church? No, it's an opportunity. I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity and I'm going to go someplace outside of Jerusalem to a place those Jewish religious leaders would never go and preach in Samaria. Skip ahead. We're going to go down to verse 26. Philip is now walking after his Samaritan mission. He's now on a journey. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now, I want to be in tune with the Holy Spirit so that he would tell me things and I would know with certainty to do them, right? I would like the Holy Spirit to speak with certainty to me like that. But I want to draw your attention to Philip, this guy who does miracles. And did you see the mission that he was given? An angel says, go to that road and start walking. I want more detail than that. I, I, I'm not really comfortable with the idea of he might just say to me, start walking, see what happens. But God seems to do that a lot in the Bible. I, and then the Holy Spirit speaks to Philip. And he says, there's a chariot there. Go next to it. I want more detail. God, give me some more information. Am I supposed to stand on the right side of the chariot or the left side of the chariot? Am I supposed to keep pace with the chariot? Am I supposed to run with the chariot? Am I supposed to ask the chariot to stop? Am I supposed to grab onto the chariot? Am I supposed to hang on to the back of the chariot? Am I supposed to yell into the chariot? Am I supposed to do anything to the chariot? Am I supposed to try to knock it over? What am I supposed to do, God? That's the last time the Holy Spirit speaks to Philip 
in this passage. The Holy Spirit just says, go next to the chariot. This is the way the Holy Spirit works. Not with details, but with options and opportunities. Because the guy in the chariot just happens to be reading from the book of Isaiah. Verse 30 says this, Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Philip's a Jew. The man is clearly not. He's an Ethiopian. He's got to be black. And Philip says to this guy, "Um, Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asks. The Holy Spirit doesn't say, Philip, ask the guy a question. Now, maybe the Holy Spirit did, but it doesn't get written down. All the other things got written down. All the other details got written down. But this one, it's just Philip saying, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Who told Philip to get into the chariot? The Holy Spirit? The dude. It's not some detail that is handed down from heaven. It's just an opportunity. And so Philip says, all right, I'll take this opportunity. So this is the passage the eunuch was reading. Verse 32. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. There is no passage in the Bible more messianic than Isaiah 53. And it just so happened that this guy was reading it and he doesn't understand what he reads. Look what it says, verse 34. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Of course he would. There is no better passage of scripture than that one. That is the best opportunity, the most wide open door. That is the opportunity par excellence where God just simply hands hands it to Philip and says, who's the one who was crucified for the sins of the world? The prophet or someone else? Let me tell you, it's Jesus. This is the most awesome situation that could have been dropped in Philip's lap. And as they traveled along the road, look at this, verse 36. They came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? I love it. The eunuch says, I should be baptized. There's water there. Let's do it. Philip is just going along literally for the ride. He's just going along. He says, all right, verse 38, and he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. The next time you see the spirit, he's teleporting Philip somewhere else. Like literally zapped him away. In other words, as I said before, Philip has been for this entire time just going along for the ride. The angel says, walk down that road. The spirit says, stand next to that chariot. The eunuch says, come up into the chariot. The eunuch says, here's some water. And then at the end, Philip teleports away. Here's the deal. Both Stephen and Philip experienced the Holy Spirit in their lives in totally different ways. I have a tendency to want to experience life like Philip did. 
do some miracles, have some cool things. God gives me some details, not all the details, but then he teleports me to a different place where I need to be. I think that would be cool. That would be really cool. I'd love to have an encounter of the Holy Spirit, which is kind of, you know, that dramatic and that cool. But Stephen was the one who preached to the man who later became Paul. Listen, I don't know what opportunity God is going to give you. But the one similarity between Philip and Stephen is that God gave them each an opportunity and they took it. See, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to be people like that. This is how my life has always operated. At least my relationship with God really truly got started when I was a freshman in high school. And at that moment in my life, I prayed this prayer. I said, God, I don't know how you're going to lead me. But I'll tell you this. If you open a door, I'll walk through it. If you give me an opportunity, I'll take it. And from that moment on, God has led me that way the rest of my life. All of the most significant moments in my life have happened from that specific method. God, give me an opportunity. God opens the door, and then I walk through it. In May of 2013, I got a phone call. It was Saturday. I got a phone call, and that morning, on the other end of the line, was a voice I'd never heard before, a woman who was crying and frantic. And she says to me, I found your name in the phone book. I'm looking for a pastor. Can you come and do my wedding? And I said, when? And she said, now. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, we've been planning this wedding for months. We're at the amphitheater at Columbian Park. And my pastor hasn't shown up. We can't get in touch with him. We don't know where he is. Our whole family is here. And we don't know what's going on. Can you please come out here and do the ceremony for us? And I'm like, who is this? And she tells me some details of who she is and who her pastor is. And I know this pastor guy. And so I send him a text message and he doesn't respond to me. I don't know what's going on. And so I'm like, okay, well, if, if you met with this guy, then I guess, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll come out. And, and did you do counseling with him? Yeah, we did counseling with him. Okay, fine. I'll come out. So I get dressed. I run downstairs. I grab my generic wedding ceremony. I change the names of the people in it. I print it up, get it slid into my Bible. I'm wearing a suit, which I never wear. And then I, I drive down to Columbian Park and I get there and I meet this girl and I meet her fiance and I'm talking to them and the fiance introduces himself as his name is Richard and I'm like okay Richard that's really cool I, I'm glad to meet you and so uh, we we go through this thing I, I meet the two of them together I pray with both of them we get everything straightened out we plan everything we schedule everything and then five minutes before showtime the other pastor shows up. And I've been there for an hour and a half. And the other pastor shows up like five minutes right before. And now there's the debate. The debate between the two, between the couple. Which pastor do we go with? The pastor who came to rescue us or the pastor that we've been meeting with for premarital counseling all this time. And they hadn't been attending his church. They'd just been meeting with him for counseling. So they go with him. 
because I encouraged them to. He's the guy who had a more of a relationship with them. I said, go with him. But I said to Richard, what I'll do is I'll add you to my Facebook friends, and if you ever need anything, you can get in touch with me. About a year later, I noticed on his Facebook feed that he was posting some negative things. And so I reached out to him, and I said, dude, what's going on? He said, my marriage is kind of rocky. I need some help. So we met. We met a few times at Arby's. I encouraged him to come to our church. I went through some of our coaching materials with him. He faded out of relationship with me for a while, but we stayed a little bit connected on Facebook. And then about six months later, he calls me up and says, man, I'm in, I'm in trouble. I got some marriage problems. Can we meet again and talk? I say, okay, fine. Let's meet again. And we talked. That time I said, listen, you really need to come to our church. You got to get involved in a relationship with God's people. And he said, okay, I'll look into it. Eventually he started coming. And in 2016, I had the great honor and privilege and joy of being there when Richard Zerby was baptized here. And that was in February of 2016. Uh, About a year passes and he gets mad at something going on in the church. By the way, I asked him if I could tell this story. He said it was okay. He got mad at something that was going on in the church and he stopped coming. So about six months later, I connect with him on Facebook and I'm like, dude, you really should start coming back again. He says, yeah, I need it. My, my marriage is worse than ever. So he comes back and I said, listen, this is what you have to do. And I gave him a recipe of things to do to try to help his marriage. And he followed my recipe to the T. He started coming to church. He started coming to a core group. He started getting involved around here. He started volunteering and serving. In fact, his wife even came here a couple times and he was doing everything I asked him to do. And it just wasn't working in his relationship. And finally, he kind of stopped coming to the church again. But then, about two years ago, his wedding, his marriage finally crumbled. It finally ended. And he said, I really need some help. And I challenged him on some things. And 18 months ago, he decided to come back to the church. And he started getting his faith serious. And I got to watch him transform over and over and over again. Grow deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. He made a commitment to not get into a girlfriend relationship for a year. And then... Three months later, God brought a girl into his life that was just absolutely great for him. Someone who loved Jesus and someone who helped him love Jesus more. And I said, Richard, you made a commitment. He said, I know. And so I'm not going to propose or anything for a year. But if other people call us boyfriend and girlfriend, I'm not going to stop them. And so he let that happen. And then then a year, uh, this last fall, he says, Jeff, I want you to be my best man in my wedding. I said, I've never been best man before. His bride's pastor was going to perform the wedding. So it would be the second wedding that I would attend for Richard that I wouldn't be, you know, doing it. Um, But I would be his best man. And I said, yes. And so we start planning some things. And then this last week, his fiancee loses her health insurance. And they realize in order for her to be covered, they probably need to be married. And he says, he sends me a text message about a week ago. And he says, can we elope in Lafayette? And would you do the ceremony? I'm like thinking to myself, Richard, this is the second time I've had a spontaneous wedding invite from you. And so I say, certainly. And so Friday afternoon, with fewer than 10 people in the building, I was able to perform the wedding for Richard Zerby and his bride, Elizabeth, while their families were out there, just six of them, And we got to celebrate a brand new life that God had done in Richard's heart 
A brand new life that God has done in Elizabeth's heart and a brand new life that he is doing in both of them together. And I have to say this, because sometimes people look at the pastor's life and the success stories that I say, and they think, oh, the pastor has this great success story. But on May 4th, 2013, all of my being wanted to say no. Everything in me wanted to say no. I don't know these people. I don't need to know these people. They've got another pastor in their life. Why should I invest? But God gave me an opportunity, and I said yes. This is what I want to encourage you. That when God doesn't follow your expectations, when God doesn't make sense, stop interrupting him because it might be your opportunity. And when the Holy Spirit gives you an opportunity, walk into it. Walk into it. All the way, deeply, thoroughly. Now, you might still have the question, well, how do I know if it's the Holy Spirit giving me the opportunity? I can't give you some recipe that gives you the perfect answer for that. But if you maintain a relationship with God, you maintain a knowledge of his word, you maintain a, a life of prayer, you maintain a life of community with other people who are following God, then I am firmly convinced in the combination of those things, the thoughts that come into your heart, the desires that come into your heart, and the suggestions that come into your life from the people around you, I believe with all my heart that you will be able to discern where the Holy Spirit is guiding you, and it's just left up to you whether you will take advantage of that opportunity. We now as a church have an amazing opportunity to be the people who represent him well in this world. Okay, so we can't meet in person, but we can do social media. So you got to do it well. Stop all this crazy, I hate the other politics side of things stuff that you do on Facebook. Stop all of the crazy, here's one more thing we need to hate in the world. Stop all the meanness. Stop all the criticism. Stop all that other stuff and stand up for Jesus. Stand up for the one who would say, This world has always been about people who rejected the Holy Spirit. And me, no longer. I'm going to be one of those people who sees an opportunity and takes advantage of it. I hope that's true for you. I hope it's true for me. And whether the opportunity presents itself on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever, I hope that we can be people who represent Jesus well, who display a life of peace, display a life of joy, display a life of hope, display a life of love, and display a life above all, that we're people who know the one who conquered death. And that's the most important thing. Because after all, it's not what you know. It's who you know. Too often we get ourselves wrapped up in the what. Let me remind you, especially now more than ever, to get yourself wrapped up in the who. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.